and we are live from America and just outside the Matrix. It's time once again for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan. This is the backstory. Well, it's good to be back. I want to thank so much everybody who kept the show running when I was in the hospital. And unfortunately for them, I'm back. There we go. I've, I've taken over my seat. Luckily, it's my seat, literally my seat at my house. So it's mine to take over. But it is also Friday. And just like old, the old, in days of old, it is Frosty Friday. We have Mark Frost on. Greetings. How you doing, my friend? Hey, Mark, I've been better. But thanks for asking. Thanks for bringing up that depressing subject of how I'm doing. But uh, I, I'm great. It's good to hear your voice. Well, you're not dead, which is better than the alternative, right? So Potentially. I'm, I'm not going to say it for sure, but potentially. As far now, as I know. don't come to my front door and slap me, though, okay? <laughs> there we go. Mark, I'm not only happy to hear your voice, frog rock drummer, entrepreneur, economist, Eagle Scout, but I wanted to hear your voice because there's a lot to talk to you about. Today, Mark, is Happy Ruble Day. I don't know if you even know. I was on Fault Lines, I think it was a while back, but I bought rubles back when, whenever it was, four weeks ago or so. And I'm buying a motorcycle with the profits. You you made money in rubles. I made a fortune, not a fortune, but I'm. if I would have put more money in it, I would have. But yeah, I made... I tripled my money. Well, we'll talk about that. I wanted to talk to you about it because I knew you'd know what the hell it means. And it's important to know that that's going on. We also have a pre-tape interview with Robert Bridge coming up in the second hour. And in the first hour, our good friend Tyler Nixon is an exciting episode of The Backstory. Ted Rawl, not Tyler Nixon. I had my wrong T word. But Ted Rawl will be joining us, and we're excited to have him. So, Mark, explain. Now, this deal with their buying, yeah, from now on, if you want to do business with Russia, you have to do business in rubles. Is And, and they're doing it. By what I mean, it's not a bluff. We're used to politicians bluffing. We're used to politicians saying something. And then at the end of the day, they don't do it. Putin is not bluffing on this. It came down to a deadline. He set a short deadline for the day of the deadline. Why is this a big, is this a big deal and why, Mark? It's a big deal, mostly symbolically, because what we have right now going on internationally, we have an anarchy of nations, forget the United Nations, you know, that's a that's a club. So we have an anarchy of nations and nations uh, get to do what they want to do within the framework of their own rationality. So what we have going on right now today is a big, giant, complicated mathematical game theory uh, model, because everything everybody's doing is based on conditional probability. That is, you know, Putin's thinking what is Biden going to do? And Biden's thinking, what is Putin going to do? And each contingent possibility changes the rational choice given that 
given that contingent probability. And so my view is that, uh, well, I'm a big believer in uh, full transparency. Everybody that tunes into this show or fault lines or follows me knows I'm a staunch capitalist. I believe in freedom, individual freedom, that sort of a thing. Uh, Lee and I have a lot in common. Uh, The difference between uh, you, Lee, and me is you're pro-Russia. I don't give a rat's ass about Russia per se. I I don't care about Putin per se. What I care about is my country, and I don't like the trajectory that my country is on. And I find the hypocrisy to just be infuriating. So, for instance, why are we buying oil from Saudi Arabia? They murdered a journalist that worked for an American uh, newspaper. They enticed him into a Turkish embassy. They killed him and they cut him up and took him out in suitcases. And nothing really happened. I mean, Saudi Arabia is going on just like always. There was no great calls for boycott, no great calls for we have to stop this in the name of human decency. That sort of a thing. And that's the type of thing that makes me worry about my country. And uh, to me, what's going on right now isn't really a matter of American interest. In fact, I would argue that what we're doing, the policy we're on is actually against our self-interest. And that's what I'm against. That's my personal, just just so listeners can have full transparency, that's where I'm coming from. And so, uh, so my view on this is I don't think anybody knows because the data changes every day and the way that data is interpreted has to be by definition taken in context of what the best expect, the best expectation that the various opponents are likely to do. And that's what makes it complicated and as a student of war, like I am, uh, a lot of wars start unnecessarily. Uh, arguably, World War One didn't need to happen. Arguably, World War Two didn't need to happen. It was a historical. It was the reason it happened was actions in part by the West, that looking back on it, made certain something like that was going to happen. And uh, that's my problem right now with what's going on. And to be honest, I don't know who to believe anymore. Uh, It it worries me when I turn on the TV and start cycling to the channels and Fox and CNN and MSNBC, and all those channels are saying the same thing, like, like some mysterious force sent out a memo that said, okay, news channels now must think this way. And that always makes me nervous. It must be the libertarian in me that is fearful of concentrated government power. And I just don't trust my own government on this very much. Well, so let me clarify where I'm at. So first off, I I can concerned about my country, America, too. That's my chief concern. And I am pro-Russia under Vladimir Putin. And because 
of all the nations on the earth, Russia is the one country that is acting in opposition to the forces of dangerous globalization that I see in the world. Uh, and they were very explicit about this. Back on February 4th, they met with Chinese. The Russians and the Chinese met. And they came out and they used terms like global hegemony. And they are fighting against globalization on a wide scale. And I specifically think the U.S., you talk about unnecessary wars. There's no reason for us having tension with Russia now, except it is a, an adversary by choice. Sergey Lavrov made a speech last week, and the speech was significant. He provided a history lesson. He said, basically, for 30 years since the breakup of the Soviet Union, we've tried to work with the U.S. We've tried to be friendly. And from what I've looked at, that was true. Putin thought about joining NATO at one point. And historically, that's on the record. And every, every, every turn, they've rejected it. Now, let me clarify what to believe and what not to believe. This is actually very easy, uh, as far as I'm concerned. When you look at, let me ask you a question that I think is clarifying. Is there any doubt the United States has used sanctions as an economic weapon against Russia, certainly the last six years or so, but possibly through that 30-year period and more heavily since 2014? Is there any doubt about the sanctions that the U.S. uses? No, we, we, we're, we're clearly using them. And what I would argue is that's against, because you and I agree, I'm in favor of capitalism. There's nothing more anti-capitalist than the use of force, the use of government power, the use of sanctions to stop. And it's not only about Russia, it's not only... We're not going to deal with you. They went out of their way, for instance, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is suspended currently. We had no business getting involved in that transaction between Germany and Russia. Yet we used our clout, which is another way of saying we bullied our way in. I look at the sanctions that the U.S. used consistently not just against Russia, but against Iraq, and with with absolutely deadly consequences. And it punishes the people. And, and let's just say, actually, let's think about the economics of that. Let's just take that as a premise. Let's just say everything they're saying is true, and and so we're going to use sanctions as a weapon. Who do who does sanctions hurt the worst? It hurts the when we put sanctions on a significant country like Russia or another country, who it hurts is the poorest and the most vulnerable from both countries. We have people in this country that, can, that, that can't even eat, uh, especially on the retired folks. You know, inflation's just wearing away at the purchasing power of their money, and yet their income is fixed. 
and they see it clearly. And that worries me. It worries me a lot because sanctions technically is an act of war. I mean, when you start restricting the ability of a nation to engage in commerce, that is that's generally in the in the in the annals of war. Uh, that's generally considered a legitimate reason to go to war. It isn't just some whim. And, and historically, I wish Amer- sorry. No, as you say, historically, we know when this has happened. Look at Iraq. When the Iraq conflict was going on, 500,000 babies and the people hit hardest were those. Because Iraq, it's not, it's not like Ukraine, which is fertile ground to plant wheat in, for instance. Right. Iraq is a country that relies on other nations to import much of its food. It, it can't do it. And what happened, 500,000 people, mostly children, died under sanctions. It was not the bombing. It was the sanctions. And we know the U.S. uses this, uses economic coercion, I don't know how else to put it, but uses sanctions as a tool of warfare all around the world. And they've been doing it to Russia. Now, I think that that's clarifying because Russia knows what to expect. Russia's seen, we, we recently had when Madeleine Albright died, former ambassador uh, Madeleine Albright had said she was asked in an interview, was it worth the 100,000 children or whatever they said? They, they lowballed it. She, she said it might have been worth it. She made it clear that U.S. policy is starving people in other countries. And I, I would say that that sort of action is par for the course for the United States. And I think that ultimately that that is what Russia is fighting. You know you've got a country that will sanction you into the ground. And I think that that power, I think the U.S. has gotten too big for its britches, to use a technical term. They're throwing around their bully power their power to affect not only, like you say, the reason I'm saying bully power is with Germany, we had no business in that transaction. And I think Russia sees this. And what Lavrov said is he said, in a sense, this is not a battle against Ukraine. This is, in a legitimate sense, a proxy war. People have said, people, the U.S. will fight to the last Ukrainian. By any standard, they should have surrendered. They have no hope of defeating Russia. And now that the invasion started, Russia has shown they're willing to, and I wasn't on, I was in the hospital at the time. But let me point out that at the time, these negotiations should be going on. And when the U.S. could be helping Ukraine, 
to surrender and get a better deal. Instead, Joe Biden is out there talking about regime change, talking about taking Vladimir Putin out. And we've had, we have a senator, Lindsey Graham, who actively called for Vladimir Putin's assassination. I think the writing is on the wall as far as the U.S. And I think it's just a matter of Russia being patient, incredibly patient with the U.S. And they're not putting up with it anymore. That's what I think. What do you think, Mark? Uh, that there might be a component to that to some degree. I mean, at the end of the day, it's an anarchy among nations. Country A invades country B. I'm not going to complain that country A is defending itself. Uh, I'm not going to, there's, there is always perceptions and perspectives on whether or not somebody should have invaded. Uh, was it correct for us to invade Iraq? I'm going to argue it wasn't. I oppose that then. I oppose it now. And it and the legacy of that war is still with us. And so, uh, and we left the place, I would probably argue, in terms of the quality of life of the people, we left the place worse off than we found it. And that's something Americans just don't seem to grasp, is that, we can't create a bunch of mini-me United States around the world because, first of all, everybody doesn't want to live exactly like an American. Everybody doesn't want the same governing structure as an American. And I learned that when I started traveling the world. Go to Indonesia and ask them if you want the same level of freedom of religion as the United States. And they will tell you, no, they don't. Uh, go to Indonesia and ask them, if you think the satanic church, for instance, uh, should be allowed, they'll say no. Uh, by the way, most Russians argue that too, at least from my anecdotal experience. I haven't measured it, but that was my anecdotal experience in the, in the, uh, time I, in the one time I spent considerable time there. So what I don't like about what's going on in the press is I haven't noticed hardly, I don't, other than Tucker Carlson, I haven't noticed any show on any channel that has gone to the trouble to at least try to point out the Russian perspective. And if you study history, Russia has a perspective. Now, you can argue the Soviet Union was an evil empire, and I would argue that too. I didn't like it. I'm glad, they, I'm glad it fell. I'm glad of all of that stuff. But one of the things that I think Americans just consistently miss in this regard is the inability, or maybe it's just our ignorance because of geography. If you look at a globe, we're kind of isolated from the rest of the world. We're a big country, you know, half of Americans don't even have passports, that sort of a thing. So there's a little bit of forgiveness in that. But it seems to me uh, nobody has even gone to the, to a hardly a, very few people, very, a tiny fraction of the mainstream media has even attempted to try to explain and analyze what the Russian concerns might be. And it has nothing to do with whether you like Vladimir Putin or not. I doubt I like Vladimir Putin. I bet if I was a Russian, I would not be his favorite person. So, so I, this has nothing to do with Putin per se. It has to do with what is in the best interest of the United States 
this year, next year, 10 years from now, and 20 years from now. And I'll argue what I argued in 1990 as a grad student is it is in our self-interest to make friends with the Russians. There's no geopolitical reason for the United States to be necessarily uh, the enemy of Russia. I just don't see that. Historically, I don't see Russian ambitions in terms of conquering other countries. They haven't, after World War II, they kept the country they took in war. You know, I mean, they, what did Russia lose? 60 million people or something? Some ridiculous, 17 million people, some ridiculous amount of people. I have to go look yeah, at about, my facts. About 20, yeah. Yeah, it was about 20 million people. You know, what did we lose? 400,000, I think, half a million. So, well, well and, and let me only interrupt you to agree with you and point out that historically, Russia has been our ally. Going back to the Revolutionary War, when the British were not our ally, let's point that out. But Russia remained neutral and they could have come in. And all throughout history, U.S. history, Russia has been uh, the ally of the United States. Things started to go wrong uh, in 1917 because of the Bolshevik takeover, which, by the way, many, I'll tell you who talks against the Bolsheviks all the time, Vladimir Putin. Oh, Vladimir yeah, Putin says, he says a lot of negative stuff about them. But realistically. He's also very critical of Lenin, too, by the way. Yes, yes, exactly. And the, the, you, know, you talked about Russia's got perspective, a historical perspective, and it's got a viewpoint on things. It is not hard to guess what Russia's viewpoint is. You could, you could if you were trying to figure out, your, people in the media act like you need to read Putin's mind and talk about his psychology, and talk about whether he grew up and was breastfed or something like that. So, like, you don't. You need to listen to his speeches. He gives long speeches that explain his position. And oh, Russia's, yeah, yeah. Russia's, and Lavrov did the same thing. They explain exactly what they think. And you can just, what the U.S. chooses to do is ignore that, and it's very consistent. I don't see anything happening to make the U.S. admit reality, admit when Russia for seven years were trying to negotiate terms after the Minsk Accords and trying to say, look, we got a problem with what's going on. Russians are being killed by Nazis in eastern Ukraine. They were explicit. They were saying that. They were trying to negotiate. And at a certain point, they've got a reality that they need to acknowledge, which is the reality is the U.S. does not want to deal with Russia in a respectful way. And that's why one of the big announcements recently was what they're calling a fair world order. It's it's a, a look at thing, and and Russia's been very consistent on this 
whenever these issues would come up. They want fairness. They don't want the U.S. hypocrisy. They don't want the U.S. talking about this human rights violation that Russia's doing is bad. But if the U.S. does exactly the same thing, don't mention that. So what they've called for, I think, is fairness. And it's significant because they have some big countries, China, as I mentioned. We saw it last night. India is going along with the rubalization of, of the oil markets. India and China are two great allies, hugely populous countries, and both countries that are, where would you put India and China in terms of their economic development, Mark? I would say they're early stage modern economies. Would you agree with that? Yes, they're still developing economies, but they're but that's a good way to put it. Uh, in stage developing or beginning stage developed. So they're right on that cusp. And uh, yeah, so I would agree with you. Yeah, I'm just saying they have big tech sectors, not as significant as the U.S. in terms of companies. Huawei is a you know big company, but it's not at the level of Samsung or Apple yet. But I want to quickly go to the calls. 202-521-1320. Ingrid in D.C., what's on your mind? Well, it's great to have you back. And that was a wonderful picture you posted of you and Shane. His, uh, his beard looks great. He could almost fit in with the Chechens. But um, what I wanted, what's on my mind is yesterday I was with Ray McGovern. We were commiserating exact, actually about how indoctrinated Americans are. And now you and Mark can make all the very rational arguments and explanations you want, but people just will not hear you, cannot hear you, refuse to even listen. Um, something has to come out that either see in their self-interest or, or catches their attention in some totally different way. A day or two ago, Jamal and Farron had this reporter on. He's another one of these Americans who just happens to be in Ukraine because he's got a Ukrainian wife and he's been there since 2009. His name is, um, oh, what is his name? Eliason, George Eliason. Mark, I think. George Eliason, yes. And at the very end of, of his his talking with Jamal, he said um, he was working on something. He didn't really have all the facts yet, but that there was some possible connection between Ukrainians, Azov-type Ukrainians, and the January 6th riot, uh, or whatever you want to call it. And... Jamal ex expressed skepticism, but I'm thinking, given the infiltration here, people like Ali Chalupa and Vindman and all these other Ukrainians, for whatever twisted logic they might have had for being involved with that and trying to make it into something that would discredit Trump, I think that would be just interesting to find out if there was any validity to that. Well, I'll tell you 
and, and, and thanks for calling, Grid. I'll tell you where I see a similarity. It's January 6th is very similar to Charlottesville. Charlottesville was something, now I'm not saying it was put together by the left, but before the Charlottesville protests happened, nobody on the right I knew was talking about that. And in a sense, it's a right creation of the left. And they were, I think, in, a, in some senses, ready for something to happen at January 6th. They had the narrative laid out, I would argue, before the events happened. But we'll be talking about that in the next few weeks. I'm a big fan of George Eliasson, by the way. Big fan of, Rod, we might want to see about getting George on the show. He would come up all the time when I was first learning about Ukraine in 2017. I would read articles by George Eliasson. So let's take a short break. When we come back, we're joined by Ted Rawl, and we'll be talking about these issues and Disney. We will just say gay. And we'll talk about the ridiculous issue going on. It's a Frosty Friday. Mark Frost is with us on The Backstory. back. I'm Lee Shanahan. It's a Frosty Friday on The Backstory. We're joined by Mark Frost as our co-host today. And joining us now on the line, Ted Rawl. Bon vivant, Ted Rawl from Manhattan. Hey, Ted, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Lee. How are you doing? I've, I've been better, but, but I'm doing okay. It's good to be back. And uh, it's good to be back. But, you know, uh, considering, I'll put it like this, considering two weeks ago, I couldn't talk. I couldn't carry on a conversation for more than 10 seconds, something like that. So I'm better than that, but I'm not where I want to be. But the best way for me to improve my speech, they tell me, is to keep doing it, is to keep talking. Because then in that builds the neural pathways, if that makes sense. So it makes total sense. I'm glad. I'm glad to have the ability not to shut up. Now, Ted, let me ask you something. Now, I say this because I, I, I know you're a, a person on the left, but you're not Democrat at all. You're not establishment leftist. Have you been following? that don't say gay issue out of Florida? I have been. Uh, yes, I have. Okay. Because it would have surprised me, by the way, and you, you, you'll you understand what I mean, if you said, no, it's ridiculous garbage, and I'm not looking at it. If you'd said that, I would have been shocked. But what is your take thus far on what you've seen about the quote-unquote don't say gay? Because it's... First off, do you agree that the bill is not about not saying gay? Uh, yeah, the bill is not about that. The bill is um, about discussing sexual orientation as a thing. 
uh, to kindergarten through third grade in public schools. So that's what the bill is. And I think what's going on here is that, uh, as is often the case, is what we have here is a slippery slope issue that's not being framed as a slick as a slippery slope thing. Um, I think anyone reasonable from left to right would probably say, like, yeah, first graders probably aren't sophisticated enough to understand sexual orientation at all as uh, as a topic of study, and so probably it doesn't need to be discussed at all. Uh, but I think. What Democrats are concerned about is that uh, this is just the first step. It's kind of like sort of like the it's analogous to the late stage abortion uh, laws. You know, most people agree that you don't really want to legalize abortion, you know, in month eight and a half in uh, for most cases. Uh, but, you know, that that's a it's a it's a foot in the door. Once you get that in, then you keep pushing it back and then eventually abortion's gone entirely. Similarly, uh, you know, hey, if, if it's not appropriate for third graders, maybe it's not appropriate for fifth graders. And eventually, uh, you know, then any discussion of homosexuality or LGBTQ rights uh, is out the door. So I think this is not about the law itself. It's about what it portends. Now, I would say I agree with you uh, uh, broadly. It is a slippery slope issue, but I think the slope is slipping the other way. This People are saying at this point when you're discussing kindergartners and gender identity in the same sentence, that the slope has slipped the other direction. And our concern is what's next. Because if if you'd said uh, discussing, if I'll put it like this, if you'd said legalizing homosexuality, was going to uh, lead to discussing gender identity with kindergartners, you would have said, that's a slippery slope. That's absurd. That will never happen. And I think a lot of reasonable people would have thought it would never happen. But here we are. They put forward this bill. Well, I mean, the question is, Lee, I mean, does it happen? Is this, is this how often, I mean, sorry, Lee, I mean, the question is how often are, are people, are teachers really, kindergarten teachers, really talking about gender identity in class? I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I'd be surprised if it was frequent, if it wasn't an extremely rare occurrence. Well, I think the concern is, look, the, the deception about the bill, that if someone had said, this is a separate sub-issue, this is what we're concerned about. Part of what I think concerns a lot of people who are concerned about it is the dishonesty on the issue and also the bandwagon. Uh, when you get Hollywood stars and the Oscars literally acting like the issue is whether you can say the word gay, that's not what the issue is. And they don't frame it in a reasonable way. How often does it happen? I don't know. I would have thought having chemical castration for minors, for 13-year-olds, or double mastectomies without parental consent, I would have thought that was ridiculous. 
but it's happening. There are places in the in the country where you can miners can get chemical castrated or double mastectomies and choose their gender identity in a permanent way at age 13. That's that's true. So I don't know what's going on, but I I don't but I I don't see the discussion. The, the discussion I hear is not look, this isn't a real issue because this isn't happening much. I wish someone would come on and say it, Jed. I, I haven't heard that argument. Just just me. I mean, it seems to me like I just it, my BS detector is tingling when I think that like kindergarten teachers are having to are are breaking out uh, to talk about gender identity. I'm like, I think maybe this law is probably is trying like voter ID, trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Um, and you know, but but look, if someone can tell, like you look, you brought up the uh, the, the thing about uh, people uh, kids being allowed to transition without parental consent at the age of 13. I think that's unreasonable uh, for a variety of reasons. If 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 it's really true that gender identity is being broadly discussed in the early stages of elementary school education, as a parent myself, I would be concerned about that. But I think it's incumbent on the sponsors of this legislation to you know stip, to to present some evidence that this is actually a significant problem. And I, I haven't. If if it is, I'm not saying it's not. I'd just be surprised if it was. I mean, I'd get surprised by lots of things, but I, this would be another one that I'd be surprised by. Well, I talked about the bandwagon going along with that people are doing in this. What we know for sure is Disney has said, Walt Disney World in Kissimmee has said they want to do away with the term boys and girls. That, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's nuts. Would you agree, Ted? I think it's nuts. I agree with you. Um, that's uh, in keeping with today's news that the TSA is uh, spending tens of millions of dollars to recalibrate their scanning machines uh, for uh, non-gender, non-binary um, passengers. Um, it's so silly. Seems to me. Now, we got Mark Frost as Frosty Friday. Mark, do you have any comment on the issue, the just say gay controversy? Yeah, I do. I, first of all, I don't like woke. So I'm, as, I'm the opposite of woke, just in general. I think people have a right, as, as, as long as people aren't hurting another person with their actions, I say let people do whatever they want. If some person out there wants to go have an operation or wants to dress up like a woman or vice versa, they can do that. What they don't have a right to do is to demand that I agree two plus two equals five. Gender is a fact, and that's just the way it is. Now, you can dispute the fact. You can have a different opinion. You can say two plus two equals five, but at the end of the day, a woman is a woman and a man is a man. And I'm not a bad person because I don't want to date a person with a penis. It's not my thing. And my daughter, or one of my daughters, is gay. Uh, you know who is the most angry? Wait, wait, don't say that. 
Don't say that. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, one of my daughters and is a lesbian, and uh, she is exceptionally angry and concerned about wokeness. Because think about it. What is a lesbian? It's a woman who is attracted sexually to other women. It doesn't change the framework of society. It doesn't change anything. And it certainly doesn't change their womanhood. And she changed from Democrat to Republican, which shocked me because she's always been kind of on the left, relative to me at least. And she sees this as a potential destruction of all the gains that the gay and lesbian movement has made. And so she, I'm not on social media, but she tells me even on the things that she's on, she does, she only, she doesn't use the other letters. She's a lesbian and that's it. And she doesn't want to be in the same movement, so to speak, with, you know, a third of the alphabet. And uh, that's the problem with this particular movement right now. So my opinion is it silly? I wish corporate Disney should be in the business of entertaining people, not trying to do social construction. And I think it's likely to backfire on them, just like it did, you know, because you have to be careful between what the press says, a law says, and what it actually says. A great example I live in Georgia. I heard on TV that the Georgia voting law restricted voting rights. And I'm like, well, that's not good. I didn't, I don't like that. So I broke down and went and read the actual law and it actually expanded voting rights. And when the world series didn't come to Atlanta, think of who that hurt. So you have these Twitter intellectuals who rattle sabers and stir up enough stuff and it harms the very people they claim they're trying to protect. And that backfired on them and it backfired on them hard because uh, most Georgians I know are very offended by that, especially when they know that what has been reported isn't true. And so that's my view. I'm not woke. Gender is a fact. And if somebody wants to pretend, if some man wants to pretend he's a woman or a woman wants to pretend he's a man, that's fine with me. If somebody wants to do the whole enchilada and get the operation, that's fine with me too. But if, if I go have my penis cut off and I take the hormones and I go through the whole thing, I'm still a man. I'm a man masquerading as a woman, and maybe that's what I want. But, it's, but you're not a man, and you're not a woman. It's just, I mean, I don't, two plus two really does equal four. And that's my problem with the woke movement in general. They invent words, phrases concepts that make other people feel like they're bad people if, if, if they disagree, when in fact those words and comments don't really mean anything at all because they just, they, they're completely inconsistent. Uh, there's a strong uh, uh, post-communist uh, element in wokeness. That's been well documented. And I just have no use for it. And I have no sympathy for it. And, what, and, and what's going on is actually turning me in to team turf, to be blunt. So There we go. Great perspective, Mark. Thanks for that.
And uh, and let's turn to something that I know will bring everybody together. When you're talking about bio labs and Joe Biden, I'm sure everyone is going to agree they're not good. Now, and when you have a combination of the two, I will point out that a few weeks ago, it was considered controversial to some to say that the Biden laptop story was true. Then the New York Times came out and said the Biden laptop story is true. Now it ties into biolabs, which I think is a huge story and which was ignored by the press, being treated like another false story. But now there's new reporting that there may be a connection to corruption. And I'm not surprised. Anyone looks at Ukraine knows it's a hugely corrupt country. And that's exactly why it's used as a proxy so often, because you can get away with the stuff, you know, buying people off. Let's bring up that clip on the newest reporting about the Biden crime family. And I think it's fair to say now, is it? Sure. I, I think it's fair to say about the Biden family and corruption and biolabs. And this could be part of what Russia is exposing. The contents of the letters show that Hunter Biden played an important role in creating a financial opportunity for pathogen work in Ukraine. The published correspondence indicates that the true goals of the Pentagon in Ukraine are far from scientific. In one of the letters, the vice president of Metabiota notes that the company's activities will be aimed at ensuring, quote, the cultural and economic independence of Ukraine from Russia, which is rather strange for a biotechnology company. The Russian parliament is inviting Joe Biden and U.S. Undersecretary for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland, to be part of their investigation. Earlier, the chairman of the State Duma instructed our international committee to begin the procedure of preparing an invitation for explanations from U.S. officials. These are Mrs. Nuland and Biden Jr. Earlier, we from the Russian defense ministry that Rosemont Seneca, Hunter Biden's investment firm, had been involved, along with George Soros Open Society Institute, in financing biological research facilities in Ukraine. Moscow says these labs were involved in developing bioweapons, and one of these labs was even involved in research related to nuclear weapons. Now, Ted Rawl, what do you think of the possibility of Soros-funded bioweapons labs? What could go wrong, Ted? <laughs> uh, well, um, you also you you also need to add the fact that the Washington Post now officially finally admits that the Hunter Biden laptop story is true. At least the Washington Post had the grace to use the words New York Post uh, in their article, which the New York Times did not. After the New York Post was ridiculed. Um, for spreading disinformation, and uh, Twitter and Facebook blocked their rather their blockbuster story from being reposted or dis- disseminated on social media platforms. So, um, the Hunter Biden laptop st- laptop story is Pulitzer worthy. Um, if we lived in a freer society, um, it would it would be up for a Pulitzer this next week. I believe is when they're announcing them. Uh, and it is, but you know, the, the thing is that whether you're like talking about the bioweapons, uh, lab story, or you're talking about 
just generally that the prospect that there was a plan to feed money directly back to Joe Biden or the fact that you know a lot of the stuff that Trump alleged turned out to be true or have be partly true um you know it's just it, it's it's an amazing story and what's interesting is they're reporting it now because obviously it's going to blow up in court and they're going to look like idiots in the mainstream media if this blows up in, in, in court, in public, and they've been poo-pooing the whole thing all along. So, um, yeah, it's there's just so much here. It's like hard to, to tease it all out. No, and, and the fact that bioweapons are involved means it's of international import because bioweapons, suspicion of bioweapons labs is why we went into Iraq. We, we started a war over that. And it was false when we said it. But now if the U.S. has done that and on the border of Russia, it should be pointed out that these aren't far-flung bioweapons labs. On the border of Russia, it gives the appearance that there may have been something. And I should point out that notice when Russia went and first started the invasion, the first thing that they did, they recently pulled back from Chernobyl. They've turned it over to Ukraine, but they went right to Chernobyl. They headed straight for the biolabs, almost like they knew something was up and they wanted to get to those first. Now, do you think, uh, Ted, that this being buried by the media and social media, literally censored, you couldn't discuss it. Do you think that that constitutes election interference? Yeah, yes, I, yes, I do. Um, how could it not? You know, obviously, I think if this story had been, um, you know, authenticated uh, prior to the election, the, res- the results might have been different. I mean, it wasn't the closest election, but it wasn't that, you know, I mean, it wasn't insanely, uh, you know, certainly, you know, Biden didn't win by a landslide. Uh, you know, certainly if Two million votes had gone the other way in the right states. Uh, Donald Trump would have won a second term. So uh, I think, I mean, the fact is that Biden had an unholy relationship with his son. And, you know, what always goes missing in these discussions is, you know, let's just say for the sake of argument, Joe Biden was squeaky clean, but his coke-addled son, uh, you know, was up to no good. There's no evidence. So there's... There's no point. I mean, so I mean, there's there's no point at which, you know, Joe Biden, there's no evidence that Joe Biden ever told his son, Hunter, that he didn't want to be involved in Hunter's business dealings or his connections in Ukraine. There's no evidence of that at all. So to me, that silence speaks volumes. You know, clearly, not only was Hunter Biden influenced badly. Uh, with really Joe Biden was open to the possibility of selling them. No, understood. Reverend Trump, with your connection, Ted. So, well, well, let me turn it over to Mark Frost for a comment. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I agree uh, completely. I mean, uh, being an economist, I like to do thought experiments. You know, they're, they're cheap, but they're actually pretty prophetic. So just make an assumption and be honest and realistic within your mind, within this thought experiment. Trump, let's say that the laptop was Don Trump Jr.'s. Would the press have covered it? 
And if you say yes, that is an, that's a damnation of the mainstream press right there. Because it shouldn't matter whether they like the president or not. Their job is to report. Uh, their own tagline is democracy dies in darkness. And so my view <laughs> is that it's so utterly ridiculous. I feel gaslighted just even hearing about it. Uh, and it actually makes and it actually annoys me uh, to the point where it just it, it, it drives me crazy sometimes because nobody likes to be made to feel stupid. And I think they think we're all stupid. Well, I agree. I think I think they think they can get away with it. And here's another thing to look at. What's revealed on the laptop? The big guy, that email, Tobo Bolinsky email, implies something's up. I want to know who the big guy is. If it's not Joe Biden, they have an explanation for it. They should say who it is. But if it is Joe Biden, that means the president was raking the skim off of a corrupt deal his son is involved in. And the other thing I want to point out is... The Washington Post, there they are again, they ran a story recently about Hunter Biden's multi-million dollar contracts. Now, Mark, in your estimation, what do you have to do to earn a multi-million dollar consulting contract? Like, as far as I know, he's not like a geographical, he's, he's not an expert in, you know, digging oil out of the ground. You're exactly right. So let's, you're exactly right. So being a consultant myself, why do people hire me? Because I provide value to them that they value more than the money they pay me. So what value did Hunter Biden bring them? Did he program great forecasting software like I do? Is he an expert in logistics? What service did he provide was worth the money? Well, it seems nearly obvious to me what he provided was access because anybody knows when you're trying to sell something, market something, uh, make something happen, networking is critical. And Rosemont Seneca, the, 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 the other partner of Rosemont Seneca is John Kerry's stepson, and he's going to come up a lot in the next few weeks. But Great analysis, Mark Frost. Ted Rawl, a lot of fun to talk to you. Great analysis. We enjoy having Ted Rawl. R-A-L-L dot com. Rawl.com is where you can find the swag. Coming up after this break, we'll be talking more with Mark Frost on The Backstory. back on the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. It's the backstory. And it's a frosty Friday. Mark Frost is here as our co-host today. Taking your call, 202-521-1320. And coming up at the bottom of the hour, Robert Bridge from Moscow. A pre-recorded interview with him. Fantastic stuff. You're not going to want to miss this. 
on the backstory. Okay, so Mark, we're talking about the corruption and you said something I think is important. Basically, I'm going to paraphrase you slightly, if I may, Mark. But basically, you said, duh. In other words, when I asked what value is he providing, you're like, well, what would he provide? Duh. You didn't say duh, and I appreciate it. But effectively, that's as you said, right? Basically, yeah. I mean, I think it's a stretch of, of, uh, of bias to not just look at the probability and say, okay, my dad was vice president of the United States, a big hitter in American uh, politics for decades. The Chinese government is interested in, uh, even more specifically, the Chinese Communist Party is interested in doing uh, some projects together. And one of the things that they're after is they're looking for uh, a friendly ear uh, of an American in power. So whether it was a direct smoke-filled room with a direct uh, acknowledged you know, quid pro quo, it is clearly unethical, and it's clearly a case of Hunter peddling access to his father. That's what bothers me. Uh, if he went off and did something, I wouldn't care. It's the way that it's been done. And if his dad would have said, yeah, my son made a mistake, uh, but I refused money or I did this, but he doesn't. Uh, Biden uh, continuously, it, it's as if he has his head in the sand and he doesn't want to, and he plays dumb. I mean, if you listen to the few times he's taken questions about it, He'll say, I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, he's never had anything to do with China. They flew together on the same plane to China. Are you telling me? Uh, last time I flew to China, it was about a 10-hour flight, if I remember correctly, to Hong Kong. And they flew together on a plane, and they didn't discuss what the trip was for? I mean, it becomes so incredibly ludicrous that a thinking person like me doesn't even get offended anymore. I just laugh. And then I cry because I'm sad for my country because this is ridiculous. Well, and I, I, I was thinking about the energy industry. It seems to me like this is something that is ripe for corruption because one of the things that affects whether you're going to do business or not is whether the government allows you to do business. For, for instance, if you were like, if you're planning uh, to build a pipeline and it's going to reduce your energy costs, okay, you've got to hope that some government official or rather a lot of government officials won't kill that. That if, if the pipeline and they'll make up an excuse. And I'm not saying it's not real, but I'll put it like this. I'm up here in Dakota, South Dakota. The Dakota Access Pipeline is up here. Trust me, if they didn't find some ancient Indian burial ground, it was violating. They would have found some ancient environmental global warming conspiracy. In other words, They'll find a reason to shut the pipeline down. Have you noticed that? Uh, yes, yes. And by the way, uh, the extreme green environmentalists, 
you know, the uh, the uh, people that are just preaching climate change, climate change, climate change. A few of those people might be sincere in their beliefs, but the vast majority of the thrust of this is coming from the bankers. Because if if you're going to have a massive draconian, you know, uh, climate change abatement program, right? Then right. Then that's going to cause a lot of uh, disruption in the economy and all that kind of stuff. There's just no getting around that. And it should be pointed out, John Kerry's name is going to come again here. Our climate change czar is John Kerry. He's the person in charge of climate change. Again, first off, John Kerry, it should be pointed out, was Secretary of State in 2014 when the Euromedan coup happened. That set off all of this. That's one connection. Another connection is his stepson is a partner in that Rosemont Seneca company, is literally the climate. Let's go over this. The climate change czar's stepson with stepson through the billionaire widow, Theresa Hines Carey is partners with Hunter Biden. I don't see what could go wrong there. I don't see how that's open for corruption. But I'm joking, of course. It's harder to tell. But it, it seems to me like the energy industry, when it can be shut down, literally they can put in any massive regulation they could say will require fuel standards or will require no fuel standards or will open up like the thing that happened recently where Joe Biden a couple of days ago said he's going to open up a billion, uh, forgive me, a million barrels a day from the strategic reserves. Now, I don't even understand any strategic reserve that you can Apparently, it's not going to put us at danger. They's opening up a million barrels a day. That's just a walk in the park. He can do it. But the fact that we had a million barrels a day in strategic reserves says something about it. The whole energy game is fixed as nearly as I can see. Would you agree with that, Mark? Yes. Yeah. And, and so now... Do you understand the strategic reserves? Yes. Okay, you want to explain it? Sure. It's a series of caves and, to some degree, storage tanks, but mostly caves, that crude oil is pumped into. And what people don't realize is the lag between the time that we decide we want to use it and the time it actually can get to a refinery is measured in months, not days. It's not like they just turn a valve and all of a sudden, magically, the oil needs to be where it's at. It was designed as a Cold War mechanism in the event that there was an all-out war between the Soviet Union and the United States, and our supplies of Middle Eastern shipping lanes, that kind of thing, were cut off, and it was decided that for military reasons, we needed to have uh, a rather large amount of excess oil on hand uh, just in case it was needed. And what I get enraged as an economist is what Biden is doing 
if you look at the the global demand for oil, the the reserve, the, the oil we have in the caves is a drop in the bucket relative to total world demand. It isn't going to make a lasting significant difference because the lasting significant difference has to do with the war, literal war that this administration has waged against the oil and gas industry. And and I'll say that again, it's been a literal war. It's clear to me at all costs, they would love to see the price of gas at $10 a gallon because then they can get their beloved electric cars that they've always wanted and they can get their wind and all that kind of stuff. Because the problem with fossil fuels to them is they're so cheap and they give the best bang for your buck. And I find that insane. Uh, in fact, it reminds me of a quote by my favorite economist, Joseph Schumpeter. I, uh, he, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, we would hope the principles of rationality would apply. However, need, they need not. Society can, if it absolutely insists, ascribe value to the irrational. And all people like me are permitted to say about it is it's going to cost you something. Well, it's costing us something. It's costing us a lot. And uh, it was a prideful moment for me as an economist when the United States hit energy efficiency. Uh, it was a cool thing. And within a year, it was destroyed. I find that alarming. And uh, I just find it alarming. And we're worried. And then to add insult to injury, one of my big issues is if you want to have a sovereign nation, you need a few things. First of all, you need some land. Second of all, you need a monetary system. And third, third you need a military. And I guess there's one more, right? You're going to need borders. We've abdicated our border, and yet we're very worried about Ukraine's border, a country which is far from the bastion of Republican you know, values uh, and has its own corruption issues. And from some perceptions, is part of the entire history of Russia. Even the word Russia, Rus, comes from that part of the world. And I don't know what I would like to see is my country to stop being so aggressive. And, and it drives me crazy. For instance, if apparently it's really bad to interfere in people's elections. Well, the number since 1946, there's actually a really great book I read recently. I'm trying to remember, let's see, what was that guy's name? It was, because um, the listeners might really like this. Uh, it's some tip, oh, Dove Levin, Dove Levin. And I think it was called Meddling in the Balance Box. Well, anyway, he went and looked up all of the known interfering in elections since 1946. Who do you think the worst offender was? The U.S. The U.S. by far. Russia was second. We were first with 81, and I think uh, Russia had 36. Who do you think the biggest target was? I bet you'll never guess. Whose elections were interfered with the most often? Who? Italy. Interesting. Because after World War II, it wasn't clear at all that they were not going to go communist. 
Okay, that's an example. Now let's talk about another example, the bombing of civilians. When you have war, civilians are a target. I'm sorry, this isn't a police action. But if you're going to go fight a war, the purpose of war is the ultimate political expression. And if I was the person planning, since I have a since I'm an enthusiast on military history, if I was the person planning the assault on Ukraine, my complaint is that they weren't very aggressive, to be blunt. Uh, so let's look at what we've done. In World War II, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, at least uh, is responsible for at least a million civilians being killed. And I'm not talking Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Those were significant, but relatively a minor percentage. We loved to firebomb cities. If I remember correctly, we, did, we literally leveled 42 German cities with incendiary bombs, uh, something like 60 cities in Japan. And especially back then when buildings were made more of wood and things like that, they were exceptionally effective. They were exceptionally effective. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, it creates chaos in the society. In the, society. the citizens uh, believe, can see clearly that they're paying a price. And the hope of it is, the, strat the military strategy of it is, is it will destroy the will of the, pe of the people being bombed to continue to fight. Uh, the great example of it was the firebombing of Dresden. There were no young men in the entire city. They were all off at the war. There was no factories. There was no nothing. They just bombed a city, and it worked. It really did put terror in the German people's mind. So we've killed a lot of civilians in our military excursions, and I'm not talking about 300 years ago or something. I'm talking about relatively recent history, and because that's what you do when you go to war. That's why I don't like war. It's brutal. Humanity ought to get to the point where they can do things uh, without having to go to war. And all that requires is that you engage your opponents or the people that you're negotiating with with a general level of restraint. And these examples go on and on and on and on. And I'm emboldened at least a little bit by a recent uh, – have you read the recent uh, Wall Street Journal article on Vladimir Putin's 20-year march to war in Ukraine? Have you read that by chance? No. Can I read a couple paragraphs of it uh, for you? Do you mind? Yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. I don't want to get too, too calls to get through from okay. Okay. It'll be go very ahead. quick. Uh, yeah, it's okay. Just a second. I'm finding the part. Okay, here we go. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization made a statement in 2008 that Ukraine and Georgia would one day join NATO and over nearly 14 years never followed through on membership. The EU drew up a trade deal with Ukraine without factoring in Russia's strong feelings on the issue and its strong arm response. And it, and it goes on to talk about the roots of war lie in Russia's deep ambivalence about its place in the world after the end of the Soviet Union. A diminished Russia needed cooperation with the West to modernize its economy, but it never reconciled itself to the loss of control over its own destiny. And no neighbor was as important to Russia's sense of its own destiny as Ukraine. And it keeps on talking about that. And it's at least it's an attempt to try to say, okay, this is the reasoning 
by which this is happening. I remember the peace dividend talk. I remember in 1990, so like it was yesterday, how excited I was. Okay, the evil empire is gone. You know, Russia can become a different kind of country. It looks like they're going to have Russia and then they're going to, you know, the old, then the stands are going to go their own way. And everybody was happy. We sent our people over there and we gave them the worst advice that we could possibly give a country. Uh, China's probably happy as can be that they didn't take our advice. The problem with Russia is they did take our advice. And then they made a mess of their country. If you talk to the old timers in Russia, many of them missed the Soviet Union. I'm not kidding. I mean, they're really old people. And, you know, that's one of the problems that America faces. We, we tend to believe the only way to live is the way we live. And that is an error. And, uh, and it bugs me. I, so this is the way big wars get started is little wars like this. I mean, look at World War II. Look at World War One, and we're and it's and it's unnecessary. I don't understand the necessity of it. That's what I don't get. I'm not talking morality or anything. I'm talking about rationality. What is in the best, selfish, rational interest of the United States of America? And in my view, it's not to go fight a war with Russia. We don't have to be Russia's punk, but neither but but neither does Russia want to be our punk. Right. And R Russia has never tried to make us their punk at, at, at any stage here. The only person who's tried to make anyone their punk is the United States. And this is, I think, it's not a small war in the sense that this is a war pushback. I talk about this in my interview coming up with Robert Bridge. That the United States is acting like someone who's an abused wife. 20 years, she gets beat up by her husband every night. And then one night she comes home with a shotgun. That's when the trouble starts. Russia has put up with this abuse. The world has put up with this abuse. The world has put up with this bullying from the United States. And I think what we're seeing, the reason Russia and China and India and other nations, Iraq, Iran, Iran in particular. They're basically saying, we're not going to play this anymore. We're not going to be party to your hypocrisy. You're, you're a hypocrite. And we see what's up. And that's what I think this war is about. But let me get to the calls. 202-521-1320. Tarif, thanks for holding on. What's on your mind? Thank you for taking my call. Um, Lee, I have two comments. First, I'd like to say free drawing signs. And also, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you're back, Lee, bro. We have prayers for you. The Europeans in the United States is so desperate. They are talking about sanctioning in the global south, the majority of the world, which is, which means China, Pakistan, and uh, India, and some other nations, because they are back in Russia with uh, you know uh, with the uh, ruble and things like that. And the ruble might become a commodity back ruble anyway, because once they start using it for oil and grains and everything else, then, you know, Europe going to be stuck like truck. And also, they, I mean, yeah, Europe and the United States is threatening everybody else. My last comment, they got this, uh, something's going on in Mariupol. Well, why is Ukraine constantly sending helicopters to take some people out? 
knowing that is a lost cause. You know, uh, the speculation is, it's just rumored, I'm not trying to say, but it's just rumored, because I'm hearing it from different analysts, that they might have some Western soldiers there, some NATO special ops there, probably. And they're trying to get them out before the Russians could put their hands on them. If the Russians find out that they got NATO soldiers down, they got um, proof, then they can bring it to the U.N. You know what I'm saying? And that won't look good. Well, I I, I think you bring up a very important point, uh, Sharif. Mariupol, I've noticed, has been the center of a lot of the propaganda. The, For instance, the maternity hospital that supposedly was destroyed. The theater that that... They focused a lot of propaganda energy on Mariupol. And what I knew about Mariupol going into this conflict was that Mariupol was a stronghold for the Azov Battalion. And at first I thought that that's what it is. But what you're suggesting, it may make sense. Because we know that who was training the Azov Battalion, the CIA. We know that Western forces were training the Azov Battalion. So, therefore, it's a logical leap to assume that there are CIA people on the ground still in Mariupol. And what they want to do is make Mariupol, which is Nazi central in Ukraine, victim central. They're trying to make Mari for people who never heard of Mariupol and who don't understand the Azov Battalion. If they can make Mariupol, be like the victim city. This today I heard on the news, I forget where where it was, BBC maybe, that they're saying that Russia is not allowing people to leave Mariupol. I know for a fact the people who've been not allowing people to leave Mariupol are the Azov Battalion. I've seen that footage with my own eyes. You couldn't fake it is the Nazis that are behind things in Mariupol. So I think people should pay attention to this shell game of propaganda. Mark, do you know anything about Mariupol? I don't know a lot about it, and I haven't been there, but I have been to Ukraine. What I do know is it's in that area, uh, you know, not unlike the Sudanland, that where they had, you know, a large percentage of German-speaking people, and my understanding is that that particular area of Ukraine is exceptionally integrated culturally into that with Russia, its culture and its history. Well, yeah, and it's on it's near the Black Sea as well. Well, that I know. Yeah, that, of course. Yeah. And that could be significant because the Russian Navy getting involved is not anything that you want if you're Ukraine. But Mark. I've got an interview with Robert Bridge coming up after this break. So we're going to say goodbye to Mark Frost. Fantastic parents, Mark. Really, I'm, I'm so, so glad you're on the show today. Well, thank you so much. And best wishes. Get better. I will. I am, slowly. Slowly but surely. So let's take a short break. When we come back, the interview with Robert Bridge, you're not going to want to miss on The Backstory.
Welcome back to Vectory. I want to thank Mark Frost once again for being the able co-host on Frosty Friday. Also, want to thank Ted Rawl for joining us in the first hour. Now, here's the interview I did earlier in the day with Robert Bridge from Moscow. And we're very pleased to be joined by Robert Bridge from Moscow. How are you doing, Robert? Hi, Lee. Fine, thanks. Good to hear from you. So first off, uh, just a general question, because I'm curious about it. What what are things like on a day-to-day basis in Moscow? Has life changed at all for for Muscovites? Or? Well, um, one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of people now, they're tuned into the, into the news a lot more than they were before. Um, you know, you go into uh, cafes and... I was just in the dentist's office today, and every time I was there before, they had the the music music television on. But today, it was on on the news, and everybody was standing around watching it and listening to what's happening. So, uh, yeah, the the Russians uh, they're very much tuned into what's happening, and they're they're really following it. And uh, they you know they understand that it's significant to put it mildly what's happening. So they want to they want to keep keep up on it and, and understand it and uh, and understand why why it's happening and uh, I think a lot of them now they're they're coming around to, to the to the belief that you know it is it is something that that uh, although it's hard to ever say that you want something like that to happen but at the very least you need to have some kind of a justification for why something like this is happening it's of course tragic for everybody the uh of course the the historical connection between you know ukraine and russia is very strong you have family uh it's kind of like um the civil war you know you have families on both sides uh and there's just a lot of a lot of uh emotion behind this whole thing it's not just like one country versus another country it's it's a Two countries that have a history that goes back a very long way, and even now today, that you have people uh, living side side by side who are dealing with this in their own separate ways, but yet very much as as one. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, kind of emotional. Now we've had some footage that's made it out over here, horrible footage. So, for instance, have you seen as people in, in Russia seen the footage of the? Captured Russian soldiers being kneecapped, being shot in the knees by the Ukrainian captors. Has that made it over there? Yes, I, I did. Yeah, I yeah, it's it's making the rounds over here, and uh, that was just horrible. And um, that was just something that I never. Either they say there are certain things you can't unsee, and that was certainly one of them. That was horrific to see that. You know, prisoners of war, they're helpless, hands behind their back, and they're being shot in kneecaps as they get off the van. And uh, I have no idea what eventually happened to those individuals. So I don't know if that's ever been made known, but uh, they were being tortured. Yeah. And uh, it, yeah, it was just gruesome. And it just goes completely against the, um, uh, the you know, declarations of war and how to, how to treat people in those types of situations and uh, the Geneva Convention. And uh, very, very disturbing to see that Uh, it's just and and that just underscores. I I heard that Russians were saying that even in the worst moments of the Chechen war, which was uh, brutal, 
nothing like that had ever happened. Uh, you have you have soldiers coming back now uh, with just horrific wounds. Some of them have been blinded. So it's uh, yeah, it's it, it was really horrible to see that horrific. Well, and the other thing, of course, that was horrible by the footage was this was not captured on a hidden camera. This is stuff that was shot, no pun intended, by the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians wanted to show off what they were doing, right? And it's so it's not only torture, but it's also torture that they filmed for entertainment. I guess there's some sort of method behind the madness. There was also another video making the rounds, another gruesome one, where there was a, a, a Ukrainian soldier and he had called over the cell phone of, of this Russian soldier, I guess, who had been killed. And he called the soldier's mother in, in Russia and was basically mocking her and telling her what happened and laughing about it. And um, I think that I think that the method behind that madness is to is to create some sort of uh, tension in in Russia and try to try to uh, well I mean of course well I don't know exactly what it could be but that that's my theory is that they're trying to create tension amongst the population and and uh, but actually what it really does is it just infuriates people and it infuriates the the uh, people leading it the military and it it makes them. Uh, Another thing it does is it, it doesn't help the Ukrainians at all because if they're captured, uh, although the Russians, I have to say, they're, they've been following the, the rules of, of warfare. As far as I can tell, they're treating the, the populace very well. They're not bombing infrastructure, civilian infrastructure. They're treating the prisoners of war very well, giving them medical attention. They're certainly not shooting anybody in the kneecaps. So it's just it it doesn't bode well though for the Ukrainians to do something like that and it it creates and I've heard that the Ukrainian military also they're they're trying to get it under control but it just goes to show too that there's so much chaos right now I think in their ranks that they're unable to get something like that under control which is at the very least it's not going to make the Russians surrender under any case if they know that that's going to be what 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 awaits them if they do get caught. Well, let me point out something that's happened here recently in uh, where I am in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Michael McFall, the former ambassador, spoke here, and he said, I read in the paper this morning, he says he's absolutely convinced that a Ukrainian victory is imminent in this war. And he said the difference is the will to fight. He said the Ukrainians have a he says a mistake to look at the number of troops or weapons because if you did that there's no contest but he said don't look at that don't look at that look at the will to fight and what do you think of the Russian will to fight well as as I understand it uh I know that the Western media, they're, they're painting the, the picture that the Russians are, they have low morale and people are against this and they're not. Uh, but from what I understand from, from here, that's totally not the case. I've, I'm watching quite a lot of footage myself. I know some people who have actually gone into Donbass and uh, they're reporting live from there. And it's, uh, of course, nobody wants to be in the war to begin with, but that's another story. Uh, but as far as the morale goes and the will to fight, as it were, 
that's certainly not missing from from the Russian side. And um, uh, the idea that at least right now, the way things are going, um, uh, Russia is really dominating. You know, you only have to look at the map to see the advances that they've made in such a, a short period of time. Well, the period of time I think isn't so important, but they they have really taken control of a, a, a good deal of Ukraine in, in this amount of time. In the I guess it was like under forty days, and uh, it's it's uh, it's really going to their advantage. And um, like for example, in Mariupol, which is on the Black Sea uh, port, it's a very strategic location, and it's where a lot of the forces from the Azov uh, uh, battalion, um, the notorious neo-Nazis who are fighting there, they're um, they're about to be vanquished. There, uh, they were given an opportunity to surrender. They were given a, a corridor to get out if they if they chose to. Uh, from what I understand, the latest news that I've heard is that they've now surrounded them completely. There is no more corridor. So probably within, I would give it 48 hours at the most. It's going to be. Uh, Mariupol will be completely taken over, uh, and as well as other other places are they're really being surrounded. So it's just a matter of um, time, I believe, before it's going to be a long. You know, you have the western part as well. I don't know how far it's going to go that way, but as far as the eastern part of Ukraine right now, it's really being even even Kiev is is uh, surrounded. Uh, they haven't actually started any a full blown. Uh, assault on on that yet, but it's surrounded. So um, it's looking looking. Uh, you know, as far as military terms go, it's looking advantageous right now for the Russians. Now, another thing I know suppress is doing is that they're basically what they'll do is they'll start by lying about what the Russian objectives were. Then they'll say they haven't met them. So therefore, they're failing. For instance, today I saw a report in the news said Russia has failed to meet its objectives, which included taking over the whole country. And <laughs> that I know why you're laughing because that's a joke. Russia's goal was never to take over the entire country. They have no desire to. Do. Or even if, even if it was to, to you know to believe that any military, no matter how much of an advantage it has can, is possible that it could take over such a huge landmass. Ukraine is uh, it's a it's a really huge. I don't know what I could compare it to, but it, it's a very large territory and uh, bigger than Iraq. And it took it took the United States quite a long time before it was able to get that under control. And if you compare if you compare the the uh, the progress and the way that the Russians are doing it is that they don't want to pulverize the cities they want they want to keep they want to keep on which is actually really the great way to to go about such an operation like this they don't want to make enemies of the people they they only want to take out uh military assets which seems to be what they're doing uh it's a very very difficult way to wage a war military operation uh because you uh well you just you miss the opportunity of you know like basically in iraq would we did was we just uh, destroyed cities completely, and then we marched our, our soldiers in and declared it a day. Uh, the Russians aren't doing that. They're using surgical strikes to take out particular areas, uh, military bases and everything. And uh, 
so that 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 makes it for a, a longer war. But even still, taking that into consideration, that they've still made very good progress. They're sending in humanitarian aid, tons and tons of humanitarian aid to the people there. And no, that takes time. That takes time, and uh, it's not going to happen overnight. And are you seeing any uh, there there you there in Moscow? Are you seeing any indication? I've heard a lot of refugees have fled to Russia. Is have you seen any indication of that? Refugees from Ukraine and Russia. Uh, I haven't actually seen them in in um, as far as Moscow. We're quite far away from there, but uh, in other parts of Russia and uh, probably in. Um, the eastern side, at least, of the, uh, or I'm sorry, yeah, the eastern side of of Ukraine, you have people fleeing there, and and as well as into into Russia, and and I know that another thing that is being said in the Western media is that they're being forced. I even heard something the other day that the Ukrainians are being forced into like slave labor <laughs> in Russia, which is preposterous, really. The, the people are actually grateful to be escaping from there. A lot of them have been stuck in their basements with children and no, no lighting, no anything, sitting in apartment basements, not knowing when they can come out. Even when the Russians go through the neighborhoods telling them that it's clear, they don't know if they should believe them or not, what they should do. Uh, so it's really, uh, really a trap. And even when they, even when the Russians try to open up corridors for them to leave, the uh, Ukrainian forces or the Azov forces, nationalistic forces, they're little there are differences in the groupings here uh splinter groups uh they're not letting them leave they don't want them to leave they they uh they're actually setting up military installments around apartment buildings around uh civilian centers and uh schools hospitals kindergartens they're putting up their artillery and uh so eventually of course if they're shooting from there the russians have to attack back and and uh, so then occasionally you get the news that, uh, oh, Russia destroyed a kindergarten today or a hospital or something like that. When in fact, there has been no, nobody was even in the places. It was just filled up with military. I've seen pictures of Ukrainian soldiers literally sleeping inside of kindergartens and setting up bases there. No children there at the time, but uh, they're there nevertheless. And they, of course, use that and hope that that'll save them from any sort of a strike. Now, it seems to me the other area, obviously, is a propaganda battle. There's a military battle. But the other part of this is economic. And today's the was a deadline day for the ruble being used for oil transactions. And uh, Vladimir Putin has seemed very resolute. I, I don't see Vladimir Putin bluffing. Is that the sense that people get there, that if Vladimir Putin says something, they can take it to the bank? Uh, yeah, when I first heard that news too, I was very confused about it. I couldn't really understand it, and I'm, I'm not much of an economist. So when I heard that they were going to start selling the oil by rubles, and then I heard all kind of different stories that it was going to be pegged to to the price of gold. So, and if, yeah, if you look at if you look at Zero Hedge, for example, um, I'm looking at a headline right now via Clever Tech, Putin gets his way on rubles for energy demand. So um, I think that uh, he's definitely resolute on that decision, and he's made it clear that if, if, if the European or whoever countries don't buy their oil or gas with rubles, he just basically won't sell it. 
and he's made that quite clear. And I think he's even passed a, uh, if I'm not mistaken, today there was legislation passed saying that that would be the case. And uh, his spokesman, uh, Mr. Peskov, came out and said that uh, Russia's not running a charity. <laughs> and if, if they don't come up with the, the rubles to pay for it, well, they're not going to get their, their gas and oil. So it, it's... Uh, and it, it's a very interesting. It's it's one of those like 4D chess moves that you hear about that Russia is well known for making. And uh, what this essentially does is it nullifies the sanctions in ways that will probably be too complicated for me to explain right now. But it's a really brilliant move, and I think it it obviously really took a lot of uh, these countries by surprise that he did that. And uh, so now they're stuck with their. I mean, it's really an incredible situation. I, I don't understand why they're letting it get to this point. Why the the Western, you know, Western Europe is is doing this? And like, for example, another headline here that I'm reading: German chemical giant warns of total collapse if Russian gas supply is cut. A delivery stop for a short time would perhaps open the eyes of many on both sides, make clear the magnitude of the consequences. So you're looking at a real catastrophe if if uh, if Russian oil and gas is shut off. It's it's not what Russia wants. You know they're they've never ever shut off energy supplies, even at the the, the worst point, the worst moments of the Cold War. They've never ever shut off and turned off the spigot, so to speak, to to Europe. So it's not what they want to do. They're just looking to you know they want it's a business deal. They want to make their money. They want to sell their product. And if you want it, okay, fine. If you don't, well. Too bad. Your people are going to freeze. They won't be able to cook their breakfast in the morning. And if they do, they'll have to be, they're going to be paying a lot more for it with um, American gas, uh, you know, liquefied gas that they want to send there, which could possibly be the very reason that all this is happening over just um, the fact that the United States, I think, was very upset that Russian gas was, was being used and uh, it was creating a good partnership between Moscow and uh, Berlin. They have this Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline. And uh, it was it was a great deal. It was great for the Germans. They, the, second, the second pipeline didn't even get off the ground. They, they, it, everything stopped, you know, with this war. This war basically stopped everything in its tracks and uh so you got to wonder why you know if how much of this was based on the energy war that's happening there well no it, it is shocking and they don't seem to want to back down at all and from suicidal moves but let's talk about this you, you had an interesting article recently now want to make sure i'm pronouncing his name right zirinowski right yeah Vlad, vladimir zirinowski he's a um a really colorful character um, uh, in in Russian politics. He's been he's been in Russian politics since uh, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, and um, really colorful character. And I, I recently learned much more about him. I always considered him to be kind of like, and he is. He's kind of like the court jester of Russian politics. He's like the one guy who can say the crazy things that nobody else will say or dare to say. I mean, he's just like unbelievable things that he said. I won't even repeat some of them, actually. But a very intelligent guy, very well educated. And uh, I guess that gives him the ability to kind of predict uh, some things that are going to be happening in the world or have already happened in the world. Now, he's already shown some ability as a prognosticator over the years. Is that right? For, for instance, uh, he predicted a black president in the United States. 
before anyone saw that coming. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. That's that's he was being facetious and uh, just talking about the United States, how everything is leaning towards uh, the disenfranchised and um, white people are getting kind of pushed to the side. So he was just kind of like speaking off the cuff, joking and saying, I, I predict that the next president of the United States will be black and he'll he'll be Muslim. He'll have one leg and I forget what else he said. <laughs> but as it turned out, you know, as it turned out, well, he got about 50 percent of it correct. So that was pretty, pretty amazing. Some some Republicans argue more than 50 percent, but he's got two legs. But so that's at least 75. But yeah. um, what is he predicting now? He he predicted this. I, I think I'm quoting him accurately here. You you got a great article on this over at Strategic Culture magazine. He's now predicted this will not be a peaceful year. And he said this before the war started. Why has he said this will not be a peaceful year? Because he's right. But why did he predict that? Well, that's what a lot of people are wondering, um, how he was able to how he was able to actually uh, pinpoint it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that it was probably a very lucky guess, an educated guess, if you will. But, yeah, last year he was uh, I guess he could see the writing on the wall with his education and um, his uh, inside inside take on on the political scene. And he you know, came out and basically said that. There would probably be a war sometime in the spring. I think even, if I'm not mistaken, even said February. Uh, so he really narrowed it down. And I, I guess he could see that the way things were going, the way that uh, the West was completely, and Ukraine was completely um, refusing to adhere to the Minsk protocol while they were continuing to bomb uh, the Donbass in Ukraine. Uh, I guess he could, and he, I think he just had a real, Really good guess, a lucky guess that that it would happen when it, when it did, and yeah, and he pretty much he really he'd be very good in Las Vegas. He really he got it down to almost the, the exact day of the opening of the, the special operation. But he's also tied it into. He said it won't be a peaceful year, but it will be a victorious year for Russia, and he sees Russia on the ascendancy. Is that right? According to that speech, yeah, he believed that uh, this would be the year that I forget. He said it in his very colorful way. I probably won't be able to repeat it because we get a censored on us there. But <laughs> uh, yeah, he said it in so many ways that people would start me stop messing with Russia, and this would be the year that people respected Russia. And um, so whether he was just talking big or what, I don't know, but. Uh, yeah, and he was just pretty much convinced that uh, this would be the year when, when things would start to happen, and uh, and as you can see, it certainly has. No, it has, and and part of it, I think, and I'm curious in the last minutes we have here, it seems to me like Vladimir Putin's in a position where he's been abused for 30 years. You had a speech recently by Sergei Lavrov, where he outlined the history of relations between the West and Russia. And he said, we've tried, we've tried to work with you, and we've been insulted at every turn. And it seems to me that Vladimir Putin's not 
putting up with the abuse anymore. Is there that sense there that this is what's happening? But basically, Vladimir Putin saying, stop abusing us. We we want to work with you. We want to be friends. We've tried that, and it hasn't worked. Yeah. Yeah, I would absolutely agree, Lee, with that. Uh, yeah, they they feel like they're they're getting shortchanged, and they they felt that way for quite a long time. Ever since, ever since really the breakup of the Soviet Union, when uh, they said the West told them when they were when Germany was dividing between West and East, and there was a conference there, and they they apparently made a pledge that they would never move one inch towards Russia. Speaking about NATO. And of course, they've reneged on that on that uh, pledge. It was never put into writing, which was which was a mistake. But uh, they reneged on that that pledge, and uh, you know, ever since NATO has doubled in size, and Putin has gone on record. For example, at the Minsk, or not not the Minsk, the uh, Munich uh, Security Conference, he warned them. He asked them, "Why are you? Why?" This was back in 2000. I don't know, 2011, I believe. Uh, he asked them why was this military bloc advancing on Russia? So of course, you know, and 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 in the West, people might say, "Well, it's a defensive organization. Europe needs the defense," and blah blah blah. But if if the same thing were happening over there in the United States, like for example down in South America, where you had a Russian, I mean, just think about it. You know, if if Russia, if Moscow decided that it was going to start a military bloc in South America, and it was expanding, and it had, it had expanded to 30 members, okay? And it, was, and it had gone to the border, the Mexican border, a Russian-controlled military bloc on the border of Mexico. Not only on the border of Mexico, but you've got neo-Nazis there, and they want nuclear weapons. Think about that. You know, that's something that people need to ask themselves. What what would be the response from the United States? I don't even think it would have gotten that far. I don't think I don't think such a military bloc would have made it past Chile. I mean, they would have they would have put and we even saw the we even saw this in the Cuban the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, Russia wanted to put missiles in Cuba. That almost led to a nuclear war. You know, and and you have people who say that they don't understand Russia's reaction. Are you kidding me? This reaction is absolutely normal. It's been absolutely predictable. There's been absolutely no reason why anybody should be surprised by what's happening. Russia has been completely, completely compliant with, with everything so far. They've, they've gone along. They've been trying to work with the West, as you said. They've been trying to work with NATO. And it has not worked. It's never worked. And finally, you know, now that I, I think what's, what finally gave it, you know, is that Russia finally feels that it can finally stick up for itself. It can defend itself. It has the military power to defend itself if it has to, and that's what it's doing. It's not going to just stand back and let and let it be just because people are saying it's a defensive organization. How long? How long before it becomes defensive? It takes one second for defense to become offense, as any football player knows. You get an interception and you run the other way, and that's exactly what could happen here with Russia, and they understand that. And you've got Ukraine now talking about joining NATO. And even if they don't join, it's kind of a moot point right now because you have you have them receiving weapons. You have countries on the on the Russian border already in the Baltic states that belong to NATO that have have US military equipment there. And it's only a matter of time if this continues when you can actually put missiles there, anti uh, missile systems. 
where you've basically made redundant Russia's ability to defend itself. They'll launch a missile. If they're being attacked, they'll launch a missile. And if they if they have assets, if NATO has assets in Ukraine, for example, they could knock those missiles down and there'll be no more strategic balance. The balance will swing completely to the West. And that's exactly why we're at this point. I mean, there are other reasons, of course. Uh, you know, the bombing of Donbass and many other things, the killing of, of Russians in, in Ukraine. But it goes much deeper than that, too. Uh, it's it's really a complicated uh, situation. And um, I think I think people need to look deeper. And I think too many people believe that this is just something that Russia woke up to on February 24th and just said, OK, today's a great day to launch an attack on our neighbor. Let's do it. It's it's ridiculous to think that, and it goes back many, 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 many years, and uh, everything is built up to this particular moment. Well, as you say, it really, really goes back to the post-Soviet relationship with Russia. Really, it goes back 30 years. Great point. Robert Ridge, thanks so much. Great appearance. Stay safe over there. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. I'll, I'll try. I'm not, not worried about bombs falling. Just don't trip. Or so the frozen streets of Russia. We still have ice over here, yes. Robert Bridges' nice article is in Strategic Culture, and you can find all his work. Is, is that a good place to find your work? Uh, either either uh, RT or, yeah, Strategic Culture Foundation, as you said. There we go. Robert Bridges, straight out of Moscow. Thanks so much for joining us. Fantastic appearance. Thanks so much, Lee. Take care. And there you have it, our interview with Robert Ridge coming to us from Moscow. One of three fantastic guest appearances, Mark Frost, guest host, Ted Rawl in the first hour, great and great calls from Ingrid and Tarif today. I want to say, as we head into the weekend, thanks so much for the well wishes everyone has sent to me. And thanks so much to everyone who works on the show for uh, putting up with me. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited to be back and excited to be talking to you and appreciate the support of everyone at Sputnik so much. And people like Scotty, people like Rachel, people like Manila Chan, uh, Jamal and John Kiriakou for filling in. We got big stuff coming up. We're going to be re-going re re over the Magnitsky Act. We're going to be re-going re over the role of Jonathan Weiner. That's why I hinted at saying John Kerry will be coming up. Have a great weekend, everyone. I love you. Bye-bye.